I solemnly swear that I will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. Guys, <clears throat> Ron Ishwood here. I'm the founder of The Truth About Addiction. Today I'm just going to touch base and let you know a little bit about my story. Um, I was born in 1954 to a very dysfunctional family. My father was a, a rodeo rider and a boxer. And we moved from the bush to the big city in about 1957. My dad joined the Notorious Painters and Dockers Union in Melbourne. And um, I guess for us that was the beginning of the end. My old man was a very violent big guy and um, his brothers were all crims and boxers. And so the whole family was based around uh, violence and fear and crime. So what happened for me was... I grew up in this household thinking that um, <clears throat> the police were the enemy, knowing that um, if you wanted something, you just took it, you know. We were incredibly dysfunctional, you know. My mum and dad never drank, but they. Uh, my old man was basically a dry drunk. He uh, stopped drinking in 1954 when I was born because he was just getting arrested for beating up the cops and fighting all the time and things like that. And he turned to gambling. He swapped his addictions and became a gambler. And um, he also had other addictions that you know, we won't address in this podcast today. Uh, so for my first memory <clears throat> as a three-year-old boy, four-year-old boy, was my father coming into the house, being handcuffed, blood all over him. Cops those days used to wear suits and little hats and the tie and all that stuff. And... Um, yeah, he'd just been arrested and they'd been beating him and brought him to the house and, you know, searched our house and tipped it upside down, you know, pushed my mum around. Um, this was about 1957, 58, something like that. It was, you know, I was only a little kid. But um, to me, that was normal. All my uncles were criminals, you know, like everybody just in our family was thieves and liars and cheats and my old man taught me basically that I remember having a conversation with him saying that I wanted to be a lawyer and he told me that you know if I wanted to fight the police buy a gun and that um you know schooling was running for idiots for school for, for people who didn't know anything and what I was going to learn in life I couldn't learn at school and he encouraged me to basically you know, be a thief and uh I was arrested in 1966 12 years of age for break and enter, shop steal, break and enter. And we'd done a major crime of, you know, for kids. We'd broken into a what was Coles those days and we'd been in there for the Easter long weekend and I'd got all the other street kids in and we'd, uh, yeah, just basically emptied the shop out and put new clothes on. It was, you know, a big deal for us. We had clean clothes. We drank all the cordial and ate the lollies and, I remember it was Easter because uh, we ate all the chocolate eggs and things like that and we uh, climbed out of the roof and was getting away and um, the police came. It just happened to drive past and seen a bunch of kids walking down the street with bags and bags and bags of um, clothes and food and we got away and the cops uh, grabbed a couple of the kids and, of course, the kids told them that I'd brought them into the into the shop and uh, I got arrested. They came to my dad's house, of course, and when I came home, I was arrested and uh, my old man beat me, not for stealing, but for bringing the coppers to the house. And uh, 
So that was my introduction to the police. I was beaten at the police station. Um, as a 12-year-old boy, I got smacked in the mouth, got threatened to be thrown down the stairs, you know, pushed me and pretended he was going to throw me down the stairs. And um, <clears throat> I remember my old man coming to pick me up, and the first thing he asked me was, did you admit to it? And I said, no. He said, good. Did you make any statements? I said, no. He said, good. And uh, to me, that was my introduction to the law. But, um, yeah, fast forward a little bit. By that stage, I was an amateur boxer, and I was training and things like that, and I thought my old man was the ants pants, you know, and he had me dressed in tailor-made clothes and handmade shoes, and, you know, my old man had gone up and not since then. He'd opened the illegal gambling casinos, a two-up game and a baccarat game in Melbourne. Um, all his friends were dressed in suits and came with nice cars and, you know, families and guns and you know all that sort of stuff and I met a man called George Joseph he owned Melbourne Firearms and George was a very kind man and he took me in and uh, taught me how to pull guns to pieces and clean them and just to clean all the guns they used to come across those days just in grease because we didn't have containers they were just in boxes full of grease and my job was to wash the guns and the reward for me for washing the gun was I'd be allowed to shoot it so you know I, I took that like ducked the water and I loved that but um, my life of crime was on its way already by then you know I started you know doing lots of breaking enters and the old man would tell me oh, if you find something with a safe or a vault come back and tell us and him and his mates would go in and break into it blah 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 um, I hadn't taken alcohol or drugs at that stage you know and I'd, I'd had a couple of drinks you know as kids you know and didn't have, didn't really deal with didn't um agree with me at all. Alcohol I used to go into blackouts really quickly. I remember the first two or three times I ever drank, I drank excessively and went into blackout and vomited and swore I'd never do it again. Um, fast forward to 1971, I was arrested with three other guys and involved with a shootout with the police. And uh, at that time, a couple of the guys were shot. I had a bit of overspray from the shotgun and... Um, yeah, I ended up in prison. I ended up in pantry shit. 17 years of age. It was quite horrific. And uh, just, just you know, to, as a 17-year-old boy in Pentridge, um, it was massive, massive, massive trauma when you think back of it, you know. And um, I got out on bail after about six or eight months of being in Pentridge and my old man got me out on bail. And when I got home, um, <clears throat> my old man had some... Gangster mate staying with him it was a guy called Billy Longley. They called him the Texan and James Baisley. Um, he was wanted over the killing of that politician at Griffith and over the the drug mule couple, the Wilsons. And um, so they were all staying at our place with another guy called Kevin. And they were in the middle of a war with the Painters and Dockers Union. And so I got involved with that and was driving around the car at night looking for people to shoot. And it was just, you know, I was a 17-year-old kid. But I didn't know any better, and um, you know, I, was, I was just wanted to be accepted, I guessed and loved. Um, Nineteen, I went back. To, I went to jail for a short period of time um, over those charges. I got found not guilty of the shootings, and um, I got charged with a couple other shootings, which one of the guys had told the police that I shot somebody that I was when I was with him. And long story short, you know, somebody else had approached them and told them that they weren't giving evidence against me. You know, it was the painters and dockers days. And uh, so the guys that were shot ended up by saying, no, they only pointed me out in the lineup because that's who the police told to point out. And uh, 
So, you know, those days everything was, was basically run by the Waterside Workers Union in Melbourne. Um, so I get out of prison or boys' home. I go to a boys' home from Pentridge. I go back to a boys' home. I get out of the boys' home in 1973 and I come to Sydney. And uh, my mum passes away and I start using heroin. Very quickly, I start using heroin. It was the first um, time I felt like I'd found what I'd needed. You know, like, I just loved it. I just loved it. I loved the way it made me feel nothing. I just didn't care, you know. We're, I believe heroin saved my life and saved a lot of other people's lives because before that I was pretty out of control. And anyway, I uh, started using heroin and started dealing heroin Painters and doctors had kicked me out because in 1974, um, drug addicts were not allowed, basically. They weren't accepted anywhere, you know. Like, junkies were dangerous, junkies were weak, junkies were bad people, you know, that would tell on people. And so, you know, the painters and doctors just tarred everyone in the same brush and said, no, nah, you're not welcome here. So uh, that was where it started, the revolving door for me, in and out of prisons. And uh, they went like that right up until 1981. In 1981, I got bailed from jail and um, that Roger Rogerson had been looking for me and he'd, he'd not long killed Warren Lanfrenchi who was a mate of mine and I went to, Warren came to my house actually and uh, a few days before he was killed and said to me that he was going to knock Nettie Smith and I said oh don't, don't go tell on people that just knock him and don't talk about it and um, you know he said the Smith had been cut the dope and he thinks you know he thinks I'm an idiot and Frenchy and I grew up together in prison and his friendship was pretty fucking out. You know, he was pretty wild. He was pretty crazy. And in his eyes, you know, Smith was putting him on the goose by his cut the dope and he'd fallen in love with that Sally Ann by that stage, Sally Ann Huckstep. And so anyway, Frenchie was going to knock Smith and I've told him, you know, if you're going to knock him, just knock him. So I got pinched again, ended up back in jail. Frenchie got knocked. And um, <clears throat> I get told while I'm in prison that Roger Rogerson was looking for me. And a mate of mine wrote to me from a rehab and said, oh, mate, you need to come in here and do something about your life. So I went to a, went to a drug and alcohol rehabilitation centre down in Goulburn in New South Wales. And I was introduced to um, a therapeutic community. I didn't learn much from that place. I uh, got a girlfriend, fell in love with her. I got 39-year-old twin daughters from that. Um, but I didn't learn anything about recovery, really. I learned the therapeutic value of one entity helping another. And I learned about empathy, compassion for another human being, which was really nice, which I think is the greatest lesson I was taught. So from there on, I leave and I I leave the rehab because I want to get with this girl and she falls pregnant and I go back to jail quickly and I think about killing myself in prison. This is the first time ever in my life I thought about suicide. I was at Canberra and I'd been arrested for stealing a car and then stole the police car when they arrested me and, you know, it was just insanity. And all I wanted to have was a couple of beers, you know. That was in 1982. That was the last time I drank alcohol. And uh, I actually planned to kill myself on the Saturday and the girl turned up to visit me and she told me she was pregnant. And uh, I didn't kill myself that day because she told me she was pregnant. And as I said, you know, they're my 39-year-old twin daughters. And um, I got out of jail after a short period of time, went back to rehab and stayed clean. This time, I think it was for 12 months. Then I relapsed again, and then uh, I stayed clean for 30 months, and I relapsed again, and that was in 1985. And uh, on the 3rd of the 3rd, 1986, I came back uh, to recovery, and I've been clean ever since that day. You know, I um, 
I have, I've, I've remained abstinent from all drugs since the 3rd of March 1986. I kept on being a criminal. I was associating, still involved with and um, still doing crime. And you know, it, was, it wasn't just one crime. I'm, I'm from a crime family. You know, you know, I was a career criminal. I never had a job in my life. I'd never paid taxes. I'd never done any of that stuff. And uh, ended up by marrying a girl who <clears throat> came from a good family, an educated family. Her both mum and was a doctor. Her dad was a doctor, and her mum was a nurse. And her brother was a architect, and the other brother was a lawyer. And uh, she was a nurse. And I thought, oh well, you know, I'll marry into this family, and I'll become a good good guy. Didn't work like that, you know. I started smuggling, started smuggling gemstones from overseas, and not paying the taxes, and just I was just always rotting. I always had a rot going, and yeah, and in, then uh, I'd stayed clean for 16 years, and I'd built up an incredible amount of wealth. You know, lived in a waterfront property. You know, had the boats and the cars, and all those material things. And I remember laying in bed in um, you know one of my waterfront properties. On, a, on Boxing Day, watching the cricket with my two cats, I'm laying there in the bed watching the cricket and laying there thinking, I don't care if I wake up tomorrow, the same way as I felt when I was in the act of addiction when I was using heroin, the same way I felt when I was in prisons, you know. And here I was, this guy that I thought that I had it all together and uh, yeah, three weeks later I was arrested for importation, for conspiracy to import um, commercial quantity of cocaine into Australia and that started the process of going through courts again, um, getting an 18-year sentence for um, importation, conspiracy import. Uh, my wife went back to America. I lost my eight-year-old daughter. She went back to America with her mother. And I, um, yeah, and I was sitting in a cell, you know, multi-millionaire, sitting in a cell and thinking, what the hell have I just done with the last 16 years of my life? And it was in that cell that I started looking at my addiction and having a look at what was causing the problems and what was happening in my life and realising that the drug wasn't the problem at all, I was the problem, and that my thinking, actions and reactions were the problem. And my upbringing had been so disastrous that I just, you know, I just couldn't get it. I just didn't understand. I actually thought I'd been dropped off on the wrong planet. I had no living skills. I had nothing. So, um, yeah. Eight years I spent in prison on that on that sentence, all in maximum security prison. I wasn't allowed to go to a um, a farm or a minimum security prison, as they call it. I'd already escaped from prison in 1977 in New South Wales, and I was what they call a recidivist prisoner. You know, I just kept on reoffending. They said I was um, intractable, that I couldn't be taught, and so I sat in a maximum security prison. And when I was in that prison, I was... After a few years, I'd been sent to a place called Borellan Correctional Centre. It was run by Serco, which is a private company. And Serco um, were a little bit more, what would you call it? You know, they were, they were just open. They were open to ideas. And the, the GM there was a guy called Guy Buff, and he wanted to do something about drug rehabilitation in prison. And, you know, I don't know if you believe in a higher power, but I believe something greater than ourselves put us in that position. And I um, was introduced to Mr Buff and he said, you know, I hear good stuff about you and you're helping people try to stay clean. Would you want to come and help set up this, this rehab? And I did that. And we set up a, a whole unit inside of a prison. There was 30 guys or 28 guys in that unit. Um, they had drug and alcohol counsellors there. They were useless. 
and you know they had other staff there you know welfare officers you know, and all that you know they were, they were all pretty ordinary you know most of the women that were there ended up in bed with one of the crims you know our drug and alcohol counsellors were in the cells having sex with the prisoners and you know it was just it was a farce but I wasn't the fast. I was the real deal, you know. And I, I went against all the, all the principles of all the boys in the jail, you know. They gave me having goes at me, saying, you know, you, you, you're ruining our business. You're cutting out, you know, you're cutting out the family money for our families. And I just said, mate, if guys want to use, that's their business. If they want to stop, then that's my business, you know. So I started working in that drug and alcohol rehabilitation centre within the prison. It was completely isolated from all other units, and. Um, yeah, and I started studying my disease. I started studying my thinking and, you know, doing really, really thorough inventories of myself, doing really incredibly honest, going right back to the beginning and writing stories about myself. I wrote my life story. I wrote a book while I was in that prison cell and um, I realised that the gift I was given was an understanding of my thinking and I realised that my problem wasn't drugs at all. It was the way I thought. So I started thinking about, you know, how can I help other people? How can I bring this awareness to other people? And so, uh, you know, fast forward to 2012, I was released from prison and um, my daughter came back from America and used to visit me every year and she wanted to come back and live in Australia, so I invited her back and I met a new woman, I fell in love and, you know, we have a, you know, nearly a seven-year-old and a three-year-old I'm 67 years of age, and um, yeah, my wife's been the greatest thing that's been given to me apart from my recovery and my children. Anyway, um, so we started working, and we built. You know, we had we've always run companies of some type that were financially very strong and incredibly successful. And um, I, I got to an age of 65, and I thought. I've got to do more for people that are out there that are still suffering. I've got to help people. I've, you know, that's my calling. So we started The Truth About Addiction. And that's our company. And um, we try to help people to recover. We try to part of, put out a message. And over the 41 years I've been around recovery, been around trying to get, you know, an understanding of this horrible disease. I call it a disease because I was, I was never at ease with myself. Um... We've created this incredible amount of people that are involved in our lives. You know, we have this team, this massive team of people that all help each other. And, you know, over the over the future, we're going to bring these people to our podcast and let them tell their own stories, their own stories of miracle and redemption and you know, people that were so successful and then lost everything and then got everything back and people that had nothing and got everything. And, you know, I say to people all the time, you've only got to give one thing up to gain everything. You've only got to use one thing to lose everything, you know. And that's how I believe it is. I really do. I honestly believe that <clears throat> if you stay clean, if you stay away from drugs, you will have a good life. If you use drugs, you'll have a terrible life. You know, I've had a sister die from this rotten disease. She was my older sister, two years older than me. I had a half-brother die from methadone that some idiot gave him because he was on the speed and to level him out. You know, this disease has taken so much from me. It took so many years of my own life. I'm not one of these people that remember how many years I spent in prison. I know it was too many. You know, it was well over a decade, you know. It was well over a decade. And it wasn't just the jail. It was the traumas in jail, watching people get killed for an orange. You know, I seen a guy get get hit and his head hit the ground and he died for an orange. I seen another guy put in a coma over a game of tennis that him and I were playing 
doubles with, you know, like there's that many things I've seen that are traumatic and guys getting their heads kicked in over a, not putting something, or you took my washing out of the out of the bloody washing machine and then someone's jumping up and down his head and putting him in a coma, like, you know, the things I've seen in prisons and in active addiction are horrific, honestly horrific, you know, and I'm a survivor. Why did I, why have I stayed drug free? Because I want to. Because I have an honest will and an honest desire. And I stay clean by helping other people stay clean. It's important, I believe. You can only keep what you got by giving it away. And that's what this podcast is about. This podcast is about trying to educate and also get, let people see that just because you're an addict or an alcoholic, that you're not born with horns. You know, everybody that's an addict <clears throat> hasn't been to prison. Everyone that's been to prison is not an addict. Now, there is some good people doing bad things and there's some bad people doing good things. You know, we are here to try to carry a message of hope and faith and trust that if you do what we have done, that you will get clean. And that if you get clean, you can have a life far beyond your wildest dreams. This is the most incredible journey I've ever been on. I have no regrets. Everything I've done has been a lesson. I try not to make the same mistake and expect different results. I try to learn from my errors. I try to carry a message of love and understanding and forgiveness to other people. But most of all, I try to bring joy and happiness, you know, because recovery is about joy and happiness, you know. If you like, you know, what you're hearing and you want to hear more, please follow our, our podcast, The Truth About Addiction. Thank you very much. I solemnly swear that I will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God.